0: We are joined by Congressman Bruce Westerman of Arkansas's 4th Congressional District here on the podcast and also simultaneously on YouTube. Congressman, it is such a pleasure to speak with you. I know we've been going back and forth about speaking, and we've made it possible, and we're really thrilled to have you talk about your work in Congress and your past forestry
1: work. Well, Gabrielle, it's great to be with you. And as I told you earlier, I've actually you know listened to some of your uh, podcast before, so I feel like I'm I'm big time now. I'm actually getting oh. to be on podcasts podcast that I've listened to, so thanks for having me on as a guest.
0: Yeah, honored to have you on. I think you're really an invaluable voice on a multitude of issues, of course, and I'll let you explain your background momentarily, but just because we've heard so much about wildfires and forestry, I wanted to bring you on because you're probably one of the few, I think you're the sole member of Congress with any background or direct experience with forest management, so I think You're an especially important voice and I want my listeners and those who may watch later uh, to learn more about you and your work. Because I know with uh, Congress obviously being in the news, not every Congress member gets all the attention out there. So I wanted to highlight your efforts and uh, bring you on.
1: Well, I appreciate that. Um, From an educational standpoint, I've got an undergraduate degree in in biological and agricultural engineering. And then I went on to, uh, from the University of Arkansas where I did my undergraduate, I went to Yale University through sort of the forestry school up there, got a master's in forestry, which a lot of people don't know that Gifford Pinchot actually started that forestry program, so it's got a lot of uh, rich heritage to it. Um, the timing when the, the program started was 1901, uh, and a lot was happening in conservation in the U.S. at that time. You had Teddy Roosevelt, you know, the father of conservation, uh, you had the start of the Forest Service right along that same time frame. Uh, so I feel a rich connection and heritage to that. And plus, growing up in, in Arkansas, we call it the natural state. I've got a lot of national forests, national parks in my district, as well as a lot of private uh, uh, privately owned land. So I am the only licensed forester in Congress, the, the only, only one in the House to have a forestry degree. And you, you think about just the Forest Service has 191, 192 million acres of land. And then you throw in the BLM and all the other public land and it's a, it's a pretty big task when you just look at, at forestry. And I find forestry a, a great field because the way we measure environmental quality is with air quality and water quality. I mean, we've got the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act and forests are that link between clean air and clean water. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt said forests are the lungs of the earth because they breathe in carbon dioxide and breathe out oxygen. Uh, but they're also like the kidneys of the earth. Over two thirds of the drinking water in our country comes from uh, runoff from forest covered land. So forests are extremely important to the environment uh, when you look at air and water, but also you start looking at wildlife and endangered species and uh, all those uh, components relate back to forestry. If we do a good job with forest and have healthy forest, we're automatically going to have a, a healthier environment. And the really cool thing about forest is we can also have a strong economy at the same time where we've got a strong env- environment. Some people think uh, a healthy environment and a strong economy are mutually exclusive, but actually they go hand in hand. And I would contend that without a strong economy, you're going to have a worse environment. So a lot of the policy that I work on is is looking at how we uh, leverage our national or natural resources to have a better environment and a stronger economy, and that way you get uh, a win for the environment and the economy.
0: Why do you think that view has been kind of met with hostility for so long? I think when free market environmentalism, which we'll certainly get to, uh, when it first came about about 40 years ago, people rejected the notion that you can have, let's say, a healthy economy coupled with a healthy environment. Why, why do you think so much hostility was met? And, and why do you think now people are starting to kind of embrace that view a bit more?
1: Well, I think people saw an abuse of the environment, and they often uh, connected that to uh, st- st- to capitalism, to growth in the economy, and they saw probably the the pendulum swing too far to, uh, you know, if you use the word raiding the natural resources to for corporate profits. And there's certainly a, a, a not a really good history in certain areas, especially when you talk about forestry, uh, when Europeans first came to the. U.S., they saw the forest as much of an obstacle as anything else, an obstacle to be conquered and cleared so you could grow crops, and it seemed like a an endless resource of trees, and if you want to talk about tragedy of the commons, I think it happened on a, a nationwide scale with forestry, as we saw uh, literally just go from east coast to west coast and everywhere in between, uh, cutting out and getting out, just moving on to the next forest, and that's you know, about the time Roosevelt and others came on the scene, and uh, and Gifford Pinchot, and they're like, you know, we could take care of these forests. They're renewable. We can have, we can keep regrowing them, and we'll have an endless supply of, of timber if we do that, uh, so we really didn't start managing forests till around the early 1900s in our country, but now we know the science behind it. We know how to do it very successfully. We can manage it for a, a full spectrum of of rights and uses, Um, but because I think people are gun shy about uh, anytime you cut a tree or you extract minerals from the the land they think that the land's being raided and that's really not the case if you use scientific-based management on it.
0: Yeah and I think with the debate about the cause of wildfires out west and even um, not even immediately in the west too, although there are fires that do happen here that probably on the East Coast that people don't really talk about much. I think like anything the media likes um, to see, to have coverage of the fires and and a lot of stuff is sensationalized. But um, I think when it comes to coverage of wildfires out West, uh, I have never had a Facebook fact check me before, fact check post. And when I shared something about how forest management primarily has to be the solution to all these different fire causes, uh, the fact checker, independent fact checker, so to speak, rated it as a half truth. And I've heard numerous forest experts, uh, people like yourself, I've heard and read from different scientists who uh, environmentalist Michael Schellenberger has interviewed and try to absorb as many different uh, key points and, and pieces of information from the forestry experts. And it's almost universal and unanimous from them that without a vibrant forest management practice in place, that's why you see the frequency of these fires. That's why you see them happening, uh, burning a lot more vibrantly and just being so disastrous. It's not so much um, more fires are happening per se, but when they do happen, they're a lot more intense and a lot more disastrous. Uh, but can you explain why uh, some people are not letting the forestry experts speak and communicate on these issues?
1: Yeah, The the, the phrase I've coined is we love our trees to death. We, uh, I think there's a misunderstanding about how forests um, relate, the dynamics of forests. I mean, if you go to forestry school, you take a class called Stand Dynamics that looks at how trees interact with one another. And there's this general perception that forests are tranquil, beautiful places that are, uh, that are balanced with nature, and it's just not so. Trees fill up the growing space. They compete for sunlight. They complete, compete for nutrients and water. And uh, they will just fill up the growing space until they start competing with each other. Then they get weakened, and they're subject to insects and disease attack. And uh, then uh, you get all the the tender on the forest floor. You get dead trees. You get a lightning strike or a man-made spark that causes a fire. And you're seeing what's happening out in California and other parts of the West right now. So... Uh, people want to jump in and say, no, it's not forest management, it's all climate change. Well, the the climate is changing. There's no question when you look at the data with uh, the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. Pre-industrial revolution, we hadn't seen carbon levels over 300 parts per million. Uh, by looking at air trapped in polar ice caps, we can see that uh, up until the 1950s, um, it was still relatively around 300 parts per million. In 1956 they started measuring atmospheric carbon in Hawaii and they got up to I think it was 315 parts per million uh, then and now we're somewhere above 400 parts per million. So if if the concern is what the damages that are caused by carbon in the atmosphere, uh, the question is what do you do about it? Um, and forests are really the one tool, the the largest, most economical, you know, pragmatic approach to removing carbon from the atmosphere is with forest. That's why I've sponsored the Trillion Trees uh, Act, uh, based on the the report that came out of Switzerland saying that if we planted a trillion trees around the globe, we could remove 205 gigatons of carbon or two-thirds of the carbon produced since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, That's a pragmatic proactive approach. And the same thing applies to forest management. You can say this caused it or that caused it, but what's the solution? And really the only solution we have is to go in and thin the forest and do the management on it uh, to reduce the fuel load so that when fire happens, it's not as intense and it's not as widespread. Uh, And, you know, if, if we've got climate problems we're trying to fix that takes decades or even centuries uh, for climate change real climate change to occur but we can have an immediate impact relatively speaking by going in and focusing on the wildland urban interfaces focusing on transmission and transportation corridors and really just using what we've learned from the science by mimicking nature and going in and taking out some trees and some fuel and using low intensity fire on a on a cyclical nature to remove the excess fuel buildup. Even at the campfire, the aerial photography shows that where the fire stopped was on a man-made fire break on private property where they had thinned really heavily and the the fire hit that thinned area, it dropped down to the forest floor and the firemen were able to, to go in and put it out. It's not like rocket science or something we don't understand and we're just failing to get it implemented.
0: Yeah, that, that's a pretty clear view on that from what I've read and I think what most people are curious to learn about in terms of it, because I think it's easy to pin the blame on something and certainly climate can contribute to this. I know it contributes in some ways uh, to that. I mean, California primarily is a desert uh, if the fires are occurring there or if it's more north, it's a more forest type setting, a more a more wooded area up there. But yeah, I just think that there's so much misinformation. And it's not because I have, you know, because of my political beliefs. I I really think on this issue that there's been a lot of mishandling, a lot of misinformation about it, because they think that if you support forest management, you're for uh, unadulterated uh logging and i mean logging should should be a vibrant industry in this country and also i think and you probably have have seen this too in kind of uh, your analysis of why you see fires also with with mismanagement and and kind of mishandling there would you say that also like clinton era policies which made it harder for people to Access forests and also uh, abusing the Endangered Species Act by trying to label the spotted owl as such. A lot of people have said that's also contributed kind of to the decline and also to the um, perpetuation of no forest management in California and some other Western states. Is, is yeah, that it's probably
1: important? it's probably the number one issue right now, and it's another issue that I think people haven't given given as much thought to. But let's let's go back to uh, Roosevelt and Pinchot and the country at the, the turn of the 20th century, when they were looking at this growing federal land mass. And really with public lands, it's a, it's a whole different animal because you've got uh, multiple uses and the public lands belong to the public. So everybody has a right to that land. And in their wisdom, they said, you know, what we need is a professional land management organization. So they started the Forest Service. The same thing with rangelands. They started the Bureau of Land Management. uh, And they were really set up to have professionals that understood how to manage these resources to go in and manage them. And that's what they were on track doing. That doesn't mean they didn't make mistakes along the way. But again, remember, they were just learning how to do this new thing to the country called forest management. Uh, Well, as we saw some well-meant laws put in place, like the Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, NEPA, Endangered Species Act, those became or they have become uh, weapons uh, to stop management and because everybody has a right to the land they can look at a management plan put out by the Forest Service or BLM and say "I I don't like this this is violating my right as an American citizen to this public land so they challenge it in court and many times it gets stopped with an injunction and no management happens. But the thing that I really try to get people to understand is that no management is management. There is a, uh, there, and, and no action is an action. You're saying we're not going to manage it. Well, nature doesn't care if you're not going to manage it. So nature will manage it and nature's tools are insects, disease, wind, lightning, and fire. And it's a very violent, process. It's trying to reach this elusive balance that doesn't exist. And all the the science-based management is, is going in and and short-fusing some of these natural catastrophic events and using uh, proven methods to remove fuel and make these situations much more controlled. I've always said if people could see a a well-managed forest, and I get accused of wanting to clear-cut everything, and the last thing that I think we should do on federal land is clear cut it. Uh, but we could go in and thin from below and you really get this park like setting. It's a, it's what uh, the journals of the earliest European explorers said about the land when they came here. Was it, um, you know, in the Washita Mountains in Arkansas, where I live, they said you could ride a horse at full gait through the Washita Mountains, which is basically describing a wooded Savannah type um, environment Uh, and now there's places in the Washita mountains where you probably couldn't lead a horse through it because they're it's so overgrown and and the Washita is one of the best managed national forests in the country and there's there's actually a really great um, example on the Washita forest where the the Forest Service went in to uh, create a habitat for the red cockaded woodpecker, which was an in, in, in endangered species. And to create the habitat, they had to thin the forest and start using uh, low intensity fire. They saw something amazing happen. When they first cleared it and, and did the fire, there was a seed bank in the soil, um, you know, 50 to 100 year old seed bank, and they got all this flush of native vegetation and not only did they see better habitat for the red cockated woodpecker, but they saw increased numbers of turkey, quail, deer, and basically every animal species they were, uh, they were counting. Plus they got more plant biodiversity uh, and it kind of matches what the early explorers said they saw when they uh, went through and you could ride your horse at full gait through these forests. So um, not only would this be good for the environment stop down or, or reduce catastrophic wildfires, but it'd be very pleasing to, uh, to most people's eye and we would see better wildlife uh, habitat. There's really no downside to a healthy forest. Everybody and everything wins with a, with a healthy forest. And on the contrary, what we're seeing with these forests out in California, when you have these catastrophic stand-replacing wildfires, in, in forestry terms, you're clear-cutting that forest. You're killing all vegetation on the forest, killing all the trees, you're burning up the, the uh, shrubbery, the, you're actually burning the organic matter out of the soil removing the soil nutrients and you'll see these wildfire sites up there where a decade later they still haven't got trees to grow back on it. The Angora fire is one of them that uh, I visited in 12 years after the fire happened and after replanting six times the Forest Service still can't get trees to grow on the site. Uh, so I think we, uh, you know, everybody that cares about the environment needs to step back and look at the big picture. And obviously what we're doing right now is not working. If anybody thinks what we're doing in California and other states in the West right now is working, I don't know what their, their standards are. So there's got to be a better way. And I believe, um, The overwhelming scientific evidence is that we need to go in and do management on these federal lands.
0: Is there any movement, I think I saw that you had a bill with respect to forest management, I think it was a bipartisan bill, and it's starting to gain some traction, hopefully. Do you think that's going to potentially pass, Um, and do other members of the House Natural Resources Committee agree With uh, trying to usher in that and then take it to a full House vote and then later full Senate vote and hopefully maybe something can reach the president's decks because I know he's expressed interest with forest management but definitely you guys in Congress are tasked with trying to help correct uh, any policy uh, errors with that respect but is there any movement to actually address this uh, from the legislative angle right now?
1: Well it is a bipartisan bill the Trillion Trees Act and we had a hearing on it in the Natural Resources Committee but uh, you know definitely not between now and the election I don't think anything's going to happen but it really is a, a science-based should be very bipartisan bill uh, and it looks not only at planting more trees but taking care of the forest that we've got and uh, you know I mentioned those four areas that really need some triage done on them that's the wildland urban interface and Gabriella you mentioned earlier in the show about how these fires happen on the east, in the east as well as the west, we've actually got more wildland urban interface in the eastern part of the country because we've got higher population densities than in the western parts of the country. And it wasn't that long ago we had the, the terrible fire in Chattanooga, Tennessee that mm-hmm. uh, destroyed a lot of property and people's lives were lost. Uh, you never hear about the the swamp fires in the Okefenokee Swamp, but they're probably as intense as some of the fires you see out west. Uh, they're just dealt with in a in a different manner. Um, so there are wildfires um, all across the country. They're obviously they occur more and with usually with greater intensity uh, in the West, uh, but the whole country could benefit from. Uh, doing forest management first off in the wildland urban interface, then looking at all these transmission corridors, you know, the campfire started on a PG&E power line. And then when you talk about transportation where you've got more humans interfacing with the environment, you've got change dragging on vehicles, um, people throwing cigarette butts out the window or whatever, you can get more fires that way or, tr- or train wheels on a train track. Uh, that that will start start a fire too so we need to focus there and then on critical watersheds uh, because when you get a massive fire in one of these critical watersheds um, long after the fires out and the rain start you often get mudslides and you do um, you know a lot of devastation to water supply systems and another thing about forestry you're you're very careful about streamside management zones not disturbing those because you want that soil held in place but when you get a wildfire it burns right down to the edge of the stream uh, so you're going to get a lot more uh, not just ash but eventual soil erosion into the streams too.
0: That's very informative because I know on both the west and east coast Very different how they manage fires, and obviously I'm not an expert, so that's why I brought you on to talk about this, but that was really interesting to to learn how, obviously, they're managed differently because of population density and just other contributing factors. But I wanted to ask you also, what have been some legislative goals of yours while serving in the House Natural Resources Committee? I know forest management is one of them, but is there anything else that has been kind of on your mind Actually, this year, as we know, uh, there has been actually a lot of movement on conservation policy, the Great American Outdoors Act passing, and I think uh, the ACE Act is also um, heading its way to the president's desk as well. But can you speak to kind of uh, successes or policy goals that you've had or that you've seen pass through the threshold uh, so far this year and what you hope uh, the committee will focus on and, and perhaps Congress will focus on in the next legislative term?
1: yeah and, and how much time do we have <laughs> because there's a lot of work that needs to be done but um, you know is things that i've worked on so far that i'm i'm happy about is i've had this bill called the resilient federal forest act where it really looked at how we do management on federal lands and one of the big things that came out of that uh, that we got signed into law not by passing that bill but by getting this piece of policy and in another bill was the fire funding fix for the forest service Um, you know, the federal budget goes from October 1st to September 30th. So the Forest Service was in a scenario where they wouldn't use any of their money for management because they were setting it all aside for the the late summer, fall forest fires. Um, So we got that fixed where they could spend their money on management throughout the year. And then if they went over budget fighting fire, the money would come out of FEMA. So that was a big, big hurdle. And we got that done. Uh, We've also got a a law passed that the EPA hasn't implemented yet that states that uh, biomass is carbon neutral. You, most people in the world recognize that, but the U.S. hasn't, hasn't really recognized it yet. We've got some programs to do uh, categorical exclusions, and this gets to the, um, the problem of having well-meaning environmental laws weaponized to stop management we're able to go in and do a like a 3,000 acre categorical exclusion that says that you don't have to do a full environmental impact statement Uh, in a NEPA analysis that if you've got a management plan, you can do an environmental assessment and go in and and do the management plan. Um, That's all well-intentioned, but it's still not enough to do uh, everything that we need to get done. The kind of the biggest issue, and this sounds like a, a small thing but I think it would have a huge impact when it comes to forestry is that action no action uh, to uh, require a court to consider the outcomes of taking no action along with considering the outcomes of taking an action because the way these plans get stopped is uh, you know the judge will look at the action the Forest Service is planning and they might say well that's going to harm this person's rights, and they never consider what's going to happen if no action is taken, uh, which we're seeing that happen out in California right now. Uh, you know, when we get away from the forest, we've got a lot of uh, issues with mineral and energy extraction on federal lands. Uh, you know, we want to move to a uh, an economy that uses the, the lowest cost, cleanest um, fuel that we've got. Someday that could be low carbon or no carbon fuel, but to do that, we've got to have a lot of uh, rare earth minerals and and other compounds that are mined. Uh, And we've got those here in the US, but China's kind of got the world supply locked up right now. Uh, So we can use our our natural resources on federal lands as leverage uh, as we uh, rebuild our economy coming out of the pandemic and not have so much reliance on foreign supply chains. I think those are areas that Congress is going to have to look at. And then you mentioned the Great American Outdoors Act. That's a great first step in taking care of the public lands that so many people value. Uh, But we've still got a long-term operation and maintenance issue with the federal lands on how we fund that. So I would also hope to look at uh, solutions, how we can have long-term funding to make sure that these Um, You know, everybody thinks of the national parks, but we've also got Forest Service and other U.S. Fish and Wildlife, other lands out there that get used a lot by the public, and um, we should take more pride in those and keep them up better.
0: Briefly, I wanted to ask you, um, is it good and positive to see conservatives and Republicans like yourself speaking out more on this? I, I think, and what people I don't think give the president for is kind of forcing Republicans to be on offense on these issues, which... Personally for me, I think is a wonderful thing. And I know the president won't get credit for doing that, but I think he really has certainly uh kind of done that. Uh, speak to that also and uh talk about being an avid hunter and angler. I know you're an avid waterfowler and uh, you like the outdoors. So speak to to both of those points if you can.
1: Now waterfowler, that means duck hunter, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> no, I'm joking. No um I love the outdoors, I grew up in, in the outdoors, but you bring up a very uh, important topic that, that I talk to my Republican colleagues about all the time. We should not, we should never shy away from the word conservation. Conservation is a derivative of the word conservative. And it was Republicans that started the conservation movement. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt is considered the father of conservation in our country. You look at the, the bedrock environmental laws passed in this country, um, most of them happen in the Nixon administration with clean air, clean water, the EPA, Endangered Species Act, all well-meaning good laws. And now we've got the Great American Outdoors Act, which was a Republican Senate initiative that President Trump uh, pushed for. Uh, we should be out in front leading on conservation. And uh, the word conservative, uh, you know, philosophically, it means someone who believes they have unchosen obligations. That's kind of deep, but uh, as a conservative, I believe that I have an obligation to the blessing to the past for the blessings I received to be here today, plus I have an obligation to the future uh, to leave what we've got in better shape for the next generation. That's conservation. It's uh, kind of being stingy with your resources and getting the most uh, economy out of, the resor- out of the least amount of resources that you have to use. Uh, that's extremely conservative. It's something that Republicans should be leading on. And we can't allow this idea of political environmentalism to come in where you think you can just regulate everything into this state of utopia because you can't do it. So we've got to focus on market-based conservation, uh, implementing these free market environmentalism ideas, uh, so that the economy and the environment wins. And if you hear one message that I'll be pushing is putting conservatives into conservation, right where we belong.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And also hunters and anglers, like I was mentioning a little bit, also play actually a very big role. And I think polling from the National Wildlife Federation came out like eight years ago that actually primarily it's i mean obviously these sports shouldn't be partisan by any means but most participants at the time of that recording were republican and identified as conservative i think it was like 50 51 percent identified as republicans and most of them primarily identify as conservatives so it's kind of ingrained in our nature to go outdoors people like hunting they like shooting sports obviously the second amendment and uh, hunting aren't really uh similar much but uh But people who respect both or enjoy both, um, you can believe that. But people, I think, make the mistake of saying the Second Amendment's about hunting. Uh, But we care deeply about it. Um, And I think people forget that the mechanism of Pittman-Robertson plays really big into it. And I think hunters are starting to get or have a reckoning um, in the public square uh, being accepted more. Um, It's going to take some time because you have some people in media who still kind of admonish hunters, but I think more becoming more open to it. But as a hunter yourself, uh, what do you think about the role of hunters and anglers in terms of boosting uh, conservation dollars? Do you think it's going to last longer, uh, continue? I think um, we see with COVID, uh, there's kind of a renewed interest in these activities. But what are your thoughts on that about hunters and anglers?
1: it's, It's extremely important. We've seen some disturbing signs around the country where the amount of hunting and fishing license sales has decreased, which is very Uh, important to uh, the conservation dollars that are out there right now you know there's a lot of other people who recreate on public lands who appreciate conservation that they're kind of getting a free ride on this you got a lot of backpackers uh, climbers mountain bikers all of that and uh, they enjoy the outdoors but it's really hunters and fishermen that are footing the bill for a lot of the the conservation so I think we've got to take a, a bigger look at how all the funding takes place. And I've always said that the people who are closest to the environment, closest to the outdoors, they're gonna be the ones who are the uh, biggest champions of conservation. I'll tell a story about my my grandmother who lived down the road from me and lived in the house she was born in that was built by my great-great-grandfather when he homesteaded the land. She was a child of the depression and uh, when I was a little kid, I would go down and help her work in the garden, and she took gardening to a new level. She she tried to grow as much as she could in that garden space, and she let nothing go to waste. She, we either ate it, canned it, froze it, gave it away, fed it to an animal, or, or saved it for seed. Literally nothing that that garden produced was allowed to be wasted, and she did that because when she was a child growing up in the depression, um, that was a matter of survival for them to actually have food to eat was to keep everything and preserve everything out of the garden. Uh, but she also we would work really hard to you know put chicken litter or clean out the cow pen and put that on the garden so that it would produce more the next year. And I tell people that's what conservation is. It's where you take care of the land knowing the land's going to take care of you. And you're not wasteful with what what the land produces, uh, and that idea can be expanded, you know, all across the the great resources that we have in this country. And I can tell you, my granny, who's she's still with us, she's 99 years old.
0: Incredible! Wow.
1: <laughs> she she did that because she was motivated by economics. She knew that if we the more of that garden we utilize, the more. Uh, disposable income, we would have to buy other things, uh, and uh, that's kind of a simple illustration of what I'm talking about when I talk about market-based conservation. That's very
0: cool. Yeah, that that's starting to become a thing, kind of like this new modern pioneering, especially under the pandemic. Uh, Congressman Westerman, where can people connect with you?
1: Yeah, it's at, at repwesterman, and then uh, westerman.house.gov is the, the website, so I would love for people to uh, follow us on Twitter and all the other social media accounts we've got.